Month of Wednesday. It's Ghost Month in Taiwan. That's right, but we ain't afraid of no ghosts. What? What the heck? Maybe I am. Let's go straight into our radar. The DPP's Chen Ximai prepares to take office this coming Monday as the new mayor of Kaohsiung. He won a by-election last Saturday with 70% of the vote. Chen ran for the post in 2018, but lost to the KMT's Han Guoyu. Kaohsiung voters later soured on Han and voted to recall him in June. Chen's comeback victory will only allow him to serve out the remaining two years of Han's term, but it puts the Kaohsiung mayor's office, a traditional DPP stronghold, back in the party's control. Taiwan has opened a representative office in Somaliland, which declared its independence from Somalia in 1991. Though not recognized internationally, it maintains informal ties with a number of countries. Somaliland has in turn sent a representative to Taiwan. It is not yet known when a Somaliland office in Taipei might open. Microsoft is set to launch an IoT Center of Excellence in Taiwan in collaboration with the Economics Ministry. The launch is part of a second stage of upgrades to IoT services in Taiwan. Deputy Economics Minister Lin Chuan-Nung says that this new plan, combined with Taiwan's leading edge in the global hardware industry, will help Taiwan become a key player in software, too. Taipei's historic Dadaocheng district is hosting a Riverside fireworks display and pop concert this Saturday to celebrate Qixi, also known as Chinese Valentine's Day. With social distancing a new norm around the world, the theme of the show is Love Has No Distance. Now for our words of the week. Andrew, ready to guess my word? I am. Let's see what you have. Andrew, aardvark. <laughs> Afternoon. After party? <laughs> Afterlife. That's right. That We're is talking an after about, party. yeah. <laughs> the after party of life. <laughs> the afterlife um, and what people in Taiwan believe about the afterlife. That's what we see in Ghost Month, and we'll be telling you all about that in today's show. All righty. You ready for my words? Mm-hmm. All right. No word. <gasps> That's scary. <laughs> it disappeared. I swear to you, there was a word in there. I don't know what happened. There's a lot of weird things happening in today's show, but look forward to it. There's much more to come. Let's put these on the show. Ghost Month is upon us, and many people in Taiwan believe that the gates of the underworld opened on Wednesday to let the spirits roam the earth. Now, many people are on edge this time of year, and there are many taboos. Don't get pregnant, be careful what you say, and whatever you do, avoid bodies of water at all costs. These are just some of the traditional do's and don'ts that are observed each year during Ghost Month. And, as you might be able to tell, they're mostly don'ts. Ghost Month is now upon us again, and there's no end to the number of ways you can accidentally upset the spirits that wander the earth at this time of year. For instance, you might buy a new house, break ground on a new construction project, or sign a real estate contract. As you might expect, the real estate market here grinds to a halt during Ghost Month. But for those who really must go ahead with some unlucky activity or other, there are some loopholes that can get you out of trouble. For instance, one real estate company executive suggests holding a groundbreaking or renovation ceremony before Ghost Month starts, so that, technically, the date the contract is signed doesn't matter. Now, in addition to keeping track of all of those taboos, people will also be participating in ghost festivals throughout Taiwan this month. 
and the most extravagant one takes place in the northern coastal city of Geelong. Now it has a very interesting origin story and we're going to tell you all about that in today's Taiwan Explained. The biggest ghost festival in Taiwan is the Zhongyuan Festival in Jilong. And here to tell us all about that is Catherine Wei. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Now, I hear that this is not only the biggest ghost festival in Taiwan, it is also one with a very long history. Yes, this festival dates back to the Qing Dynasty. Wow. The first official Zhongyuan Festival in Jilong was in 1855. That was after years of armed fighting between immigrants from the Chinese cities of Zhangzhou and Quanzhou. The fighting was brutal and many people died, but they had come to Taiwan without family members, so there was no one to give them a proper burial. It's said that their ghosts roamed the earth unhappily. That's why the festival started. It was a way to appease the spirits that died in these battles. Nowadays, 15 family clans take turns hosting the festivities. The festival begins with the lantern lighting ceremony and continues throughout the lunar month with 15 events, including a parade with themed performances. The most exciting part is the releasing of water lanterns, which takes place this year on August 30th. The water lanterns look like guest houses and light the way for spirits who drown to come ashore and enjoy the offerings prepared for them. Oh, those are really cool lanterns, aren't they? Now, I hear that people will actually watch the lanterns as they float away to see what happens to them. That's right. They say the further away from shore the lanterns float, the more their descendants will prosper. So you really want to make sure it doesn't like burn up while it's floating away, no, right? No, I don't want it to sink either. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that was fascinating, Catherine. Thanks so much. And that is this week's Taiwan Explained. Today's brain game is a top 10, and it's related to Ghost Month. That means that I have 10 things on my list here, and Nally and Leslie have to guess what is on my list. I'm going to ask the question, and as soon as I say go, the 90 seconds will start. Are you ready? Ready. I don't like this game. <laughs> you guys it's look scared. scared. <laughs> it's going to be scared. about ghosts or what? Uh, it is about ghosts. Now, at this time of the year, people in Taiwan will put out offerings to, you know, pray to the ghosts or to appease the ghosts, I should say. A lot of those offerings are foods, but some foods are taboo when making them as an offering to the ghosts. Oh my so gosh. my question is, what ghost month offerings are taboo? Go. I'm gonna just start listing random food. Mango. No. Apples? Uh, no. Instant noodles? Nope. Fish? Nope. <laughs> These are things on my list. Uh, oh, he's broken it <laughs> for ghost month. Keep going. Fine cheeses. No fine cheeses. Really? <laughs> oh, you've really broken it. The ghost dog wants to play this game. All right, Nelly, go ahead. Go. Sushi. No sushi. That's not on the list. Fine wines. Although I hear sushi could be one of the things on the list because it's cold. Nope. I would recommend uh, choosing fruits. Watermelon. No. Guava. That is on the list. Yay! Now we're the first one. So random. That seems uh, oranges. Dragon nope. fruit. No nope. um, pineapples. Okay, Leslie's got number pineapples. two. Pineapples. <laughs> uh, bananas. Bananas are on the list. Pomegranates. Uh, nope. 
Cherries, strawberries. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Kiwis? This uh, what else do we like to eat? Jackfruit, Buddha head fruit, bread fruit? Yes, Buddha head fruit is one. Really? Durian. Apples? Durian. Yes, uh, no. <laughs> Durian, oranges. What, uh, what fruits are there? I feel like I've eaten everything. Got grapes? He said that already. Uh -oh. Grapes is okay, one. Apples, right. <laughs> totally guessing here. Um, um, wax apples. No. Uh, 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 what else is? Dunno. That's right. a hard question. So you guys actually did better than expected. Um, you know, because I don't know. Do either of you put out offerings to the ghosts? I know you don't, Natalie. I don't actually. You're Christian, uh, Leslie. Um, we do, but um, my uncle just doesn't really abide by the tradition he's well, just like whatever works whatever i so think a lot of times to... too it's also the kids are not involved in making mm -hmm. the decisions the parents do it and you just go along all right so here's what we have the score is leslie won that uh three to two now i'm going to tell you what the rest of the things on the list are and then i'm going to explain to you why these things are taboo okay so we also have plums pears, tomatoes, and then we have two things that are not fruits. One of them is called wang wang shim bei, so they're the rice crackers. Oh and the gosh. reason for that one is because... <laughs> How would we guess that? <laughs> that's supposed to be praying for wealth or good luck to come in, but uh, you don't want more of ghosts at this time of the year. You want to kind of appease them and send them away. The other thing is coffee. This is a very interesting one because some people say that the coffee makes the ghosts excited and they get like kind of all worked up. Like poltergeist. Maybe that's what you saw at the top of our show today. Uh, now the reason for the other ones, there are three that are together, bananas, plums, and pears. Because if you say them in Taiwanese, jiolilai, uh, Am I saying oh. that correctly? Yeah, they're nodding. Ghost okay. is coming? That means telling yeah, the yeah, ghost come on, to come. come. Ah. Chill. The reason why pineapples are not good is because it's praying for wealth mm. or an abundance. You don't want an abundance of ghosts. Uh, and the last one is the other remaining three fruits all have seeds in them. Do you know why that's a problem? Ghosts they're can't giving choose birth? seeds? Birds? It's because when you eat them, the seeds will go through you and then plant in the ground and grow more fruits. And grow more ghosts. So it's seen as like disrespectful because those seeds go right through you. Oh. Goes through your digestive That's tract. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> not, I don't think I follow. Thank you for this lesson. I think you guys learned a lot today yes. about what not to put on the offering table. And I have one more thing. For those of you who are interested in doing this properly, couple things to remember. September 2nd, that is uh, the 15th day of the month. That's when you'll see a lot of people making offerings this year in Taiwan. Uh, between 2 and 5 p.m., you have to do it in the afternoon. Oh. Do it in the yeah, middle of the night. Why do they do that? I'm just it's wondering. It's kind of scary if you do it at Oh, night. that's why. <laughs> mm. It's nice and bright. I guess the ghosts are kind of appeased at between 2 and 5. They're content. You also want to face outwards, away from your home. Mm. Uh, you don't want to pray towards the inside of your home because then they'll all come in. Um, you need to put one piece of incense and one flag, a stick of incense and a flag in each of the items. A flag? Yes, a special triangular flag so they know that it's for them. Mm. Oh. And then the last thing is you have uh, to burn your paper money before that incense goes down. And the paper money is actually given to the ghosts. So I know most companies do that too. RTI, RTI does, does it. it. Yeah. yeah. So it's very common. All uh, This month you're going to see a lot of this kind of stuff going on. Yep, so that's our brain game for this week. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, I want to talk to you about travel restrictions. 
Hey, hey, I just said I want to talk about them. I didn't say I want to do anything about them. I said I just want to talk about travel restrictions. Not saying they're good or bad, just talking about them, alright? Chill. The COVID-19 pandemic has really messed with worldwide travel. Since March 21st, Taiwan's Central Epidemic Command Center has had the entire world on a level 3 warning, which means that Taiwanese people should avoid unnecessary travel to the designated area. Originally, authorities were only going to implement a level 3 warning for 23 areas on March 19th, but then the next day they said WHAM! Whole world's off limits. If you didn't know, Taiwanese people love to travel. They love they tourism. According to a survey done by travel website Agoda, 59% of Taiwanese people can't wait to travel internationally once the pandemic is over. That's the highest rate of any country surveyed. In early July, Taipei Songshan International Airport offered a fake travel experience. People checked in for a flight, went through security, got on a plane, and went nowhere. I'm not saying they went to Nowhere, Oklahoma, which is a real place by the way. I'm saying they sat on a plane and didn't end up in a different place than where they started. People were so starved to get out of the country that they literally paid money to experience what Andrew Ryan calls the worst parts of traveling. August 8th is Father's Day in Taiwan. Major Taiwanese airlines offered special flights that day that just circled around Taiwan. They were dubbed pleasure flights. The planes flew low so people could see famous Taiwanese landmarks from above. And since travelers technically did leave Taiwan, they were allowed to shop at the duty-free shops upon leaving the border. EVA Airways pilots took the opportunity to draw a giant thumb in the sky with the plane's path. EVA Airways even responded to a picture of the plane's trajectory saying, we think everyone is swell. Hey man, I got this crazy idea. What are you thinking? Let's draw a giant thumb in the sky. That is genius. Getting your passengers to their destinations as quickly as possible is just good aviation. But when you're piloting a plane full of people who are just in it for the pleasure, then heck, you can get all Vincent Van Gogh up in the air if you really wanted to. In this lightning round, Andrew and Catherine have 60 seconds to guess as many questions from the news as they can this week. Feel free to play along at home. And you guys look bright and cheery and yellow today. Very nice. That's right. Go Team Yellow. <laughs> okay. Are you guys ready? I think so. All right. Go. So what did the U.S. Pacific Fleet do after they transited the Taiwan Strait on Tuesday? Posted on Facebook. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what will be the name of a new university after two big universities merge? National Yangming Jiao Tong University. Very oh, good. <laughs> Who will not be playing at the U.S. Open this year? Oh. From uh, Taiwan. Um, I have no idea. Uh, so, Zhan. Mm. Uh, yeah. somebody giant. Not her. No. The <laughs> yeah, other one? <laughs> 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 That's right. And what famous athlete made the news for having a Taiwan passport? Oh, Jeremy Lin. <gasps> That's right. And when is Taiwan projected to be a super age society? 2025. 2025. Very good. <laughs> well, I'm so happy. <laughs> Former President Lee Dan his public memorial and burial services are scheduled for September 19th and October 7th. Now, what is one reason that the family wanted to keep it so far from his death? Because it's ghost month. That's right. Oh, well done. <laughs> this week, it was announced that in 2024, Taiwan is going to have the world's longest single tower, asymmetric, cable-stayed bridge. What two districts is it going to 
across. Oh, uh, Danshui in Bali. Very good. Oh, yeah. Across the Danshui River. Yeah. That's right. Wow. And we have one more question. The Taipei Zoo has come up with six names for the new panda. Which one is your favorite? Uh, Mwaji. Mochi. I don't know any of them. You don't know any of them? Okay. So to learn more about this campaign and to see our cute new panda come at the baby zoo. At the baby zoo. No, the baby panda at the zoo. <laughs> Let's take a look at this video. Taipei Zoo's new baby panda finally opened her eyes on her 47th day. That's five days later than her older sister Yuanzai did. The new cub also seems to be more sensitive than her sister because she makes noises when she's uneasy. When she does, her mom Yuan Yuan will rush to cuddle her in her arms and comfort her. The panda baby now needs a name, and the public is going to choose it. Just like they did for Yuanzai, one thousand seven hundred ideas came in for her name, and the final six are Tuanzai, Yuanniu, Yuanbao, Rourou, Zhenzhu, and Muaji. People can vote through August twenty-sixth, and her name will be announced on August thirtieth. Now, some people are saying there might be fewer ghosts this month because of the、uh, pandemic. Do you know why that is? They they died already though. That's not because <laughs> they got the virus. <laughs> I can't top that. I can't top that. Well, the reason is is because they have to quarantine for fourteen days coming in and fourteen days going out. So how many? That's a whole month. I think that's almost Pretty much. a whole month. How many days of ghosts is? That's like three days of ghosts. That's one day of ghosts. Day of ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Taiwan Insider.、Uh, be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you for Taiwan Insider. I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Leo. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Dinner is served. Join Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West, every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International, radio for refined palates. What do you know about Taiwan? 
I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm. What do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Taiwan recently saw the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, visit Taiwan for four days. That was the highest-ranking cabinet official to visit Taiwan since 1979. Today, to talk with me about the significance of this visit is the former head of the CDC in Taiwan and the current president of National Yangming University, Steve Kuo. Guo tells me first what he thinks the purpose of the visit was. Uh, obviously, is multiple purpose, mm. right? It's not only for the health cooperation bilaterally, but I think it's both for the geopolitical uh, purpose and probably for some domestic politics as well. Can you elaborate on what you think is sure? I think since early this year, when the uh, outbreak uh, uh, happens occurs. Uh, actually, there's an exchange uh, between the Taiwan and uh, the U.S. Uh, CDC. So actually, the collaboration has been uh, for some time. But uh, as you know, that uh, there's more to come. You know, we have to talk about the vaccine developments and other things. And certainly, there's a need uh, for exchange notes about how to uh, collaborate even more uh, for the so-called the second wave, the third wave, or even longer. Mm. So I think although in the past the two ministers, the Secretary Azar and the uh, Minister Chen has already talked to each other over the phone for the collaboration on the health sides, if they can sit on and talk, then they really can kind of open up a door for the working levels. Uh, to do more. So I think it's very important for the uh, both countries on the pandemic uh, control, the measures, collaborations. But I think also is obviously, I think it's a strong signal from the Washingtons to show the world and also for its people that uh, they uh, want to have a very strong support uh, for Taiwan. Uh, not only for health security, but in general security as well. So I think is basically uh, is very good uh, for uh, Taiwan. It's a way of President Trump to show uh, is different uh, from all uh, his uh, predecessors that he doesn't fear CCP mm. of China, right? You know, uh, in the past, never before. Uh, there's a president of United States there to send a high-ranking officers like uh, Secretary of Health to come to Taiwan to spend four days, not one day. You have to understand, you know, for a busy health secretary to spend four days in Taiwan, uh, it meant a lot. And mm-hmm. so I think it must be a multiple purpose. And also, I mean, he's running for re-election in Definitely. November, and he's not doing so well in the polls. So right. do you think that this is also a way to maybe show rallies 
opposition against China or change the focus of, you know, domestic attention? Yeah, I think uh, obviously, you know, I'm not a political scientist, <laughs> but I think uh, even as uh, amateurs, I can tell that uh, that is one of the uh, President Trump uh, intentions to do so. But I think by doing so uh, is not bad for Taiwan as well, I would say that. Put Taiwan on the hotspot, uh, but also it give Taiwan more uh, publicity. As you may know that uh, for a educated American, they know the difference between Taiwan and China. But for average uh, American, uh, many American people doesn't really know mm -hmm. uh, where's Taiwan and uh, what's the difference between mm. the Taiwan and uh, China. And so uh, for that purpose, I think it uh, worked very well. I think it raised the profile of Taiwan, hopefully not really kind of irritate the CCP too much. Uh, <laughs> well, they have a very good excuse to be here right. because they have a major um, pandemic that, that they're dealing with. I mean, they have over 5 million cases right now. Sure. And Taiwan has contained the pandemic very well. Are you surprised with how bad it has gotten in the U.S.? Yeah, well, yes, I did. Yeah, I was very surprised in, in some degree because uh, I've been working with uh, uh, U.S. CDC for many, many years. And actually, uh, we learned a lot uh, from the U.S. CDC. You know, remember the uh, SARS outbreak mm -hmm. in 2003? But just unfortunately, I mean, I would say, you know, it's, it's bad luck uh, to some degree. Uh, it happened uh, at a time when the, you have a general uh, election coming, okay? Mm. Uh, when the president felt kind of threatened that uh, they, he might uh, lose uh, the elections. And so all the parties play in uh, exactly like uh, 2003 when we have the SARS outbreak. That was the one year before the general elections. So we have that experience as well. To some degree, I think they can do better, but you know, much has been said about why uh, uh, that the U.S. didn't uh, do did well. You know, maybe the leadership, maybe the cultures, uh, maybe uh, other things, uh, including uh, there a mistake of the testing in the early on uh, by the U.S. CDC and that sort of thing. But I would say, I mean, uh, they will overcome. I, I'm I'm pretty sure. So what do you think that um, the U.S. needs to learn from Taiwan or, or needs to do in general to, to contain the pandemic in, in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I've been asked this question many times. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I will say one thing. You know, during the SARS outbreak of two of threes, we learned that the a major infectious disease outbreak is, is need to be treated as a national security. Hmm. So... Before that, actually, Taiwan polit political figures uh, don't believe that. But after the SARS outbreak, everyone, they will understand that uh, infectious disease is truly a national security, you know, let alone uh, the uh, pandemic uh, uh, like this. And so if you treat it as a national security, mm. then you need to centralize the command and control. It's probably difficult in the United States. But remember, U.S. has been done this before. Right after 9-11, actually, because of the fear of anthrax attack, actually, U.S. do a pretty good job, you know, try to, to some degree, centralize the command. So 
you know, the system won't be as fragmented as we uh, have seen uh, recently. And so that is one thing they can learn. And I know there are probably people are talking about how to change the command system uh, after uh, this uh, outbreak. And so they can get better prepared for the next uh, pandemic. And also uh, the National Health Insurance Program here in Taiwan worked very well uh, for controlling and preventing uh, the pandemic uh, uh, like this one. And I don't think the U.S. can copy uh, the single-payer system mm -hmm. uh, to the U.S. I don't think so. But they still can create some infrastructure so the people information can link together. So in a crisis like this, they can have a better tracking system for people. And so I think uh, they are thinking about that, I know. From the discussions with my friends in the U.S., uh, they have been thinking that uh, for quite some time. And uh, I, I think there's not much things they can learn, but I think they certainly helped them help uh, the U.S. government and the health professional to rethink their strategy and the healthcare system uh, for better uh, reform uh, down the road. They recently signed an MOU, the two health ministers of Taiwan right. and the U.S. What do you think this MOU is going to do in terms of bilateral cooperation? I think I, uh, I didn't go through the details, but I do read uh, some of the report and uh, about the MOU, and it's a kind of a, a general umbrella ones, and nothing really kind of a specific. But I, and so some of the people is criticizing that, you know, it's kind of anti, they, uh, they should do more, and for instance, it just promised Taiwan for some degree and some amount of uh, the vaccine, something like that. You know, uh, as a uh, former health attaché in Washington, D.C. for many years, I think that's good enough because by visiting Taiwan for four days, uh, formally signed an MOU, really kind of opened the door for uh, the working level. I mean, the U.S., uh, the Taiwan CDC and uh, the U.S. CDC, the FDA, uh, they can continue to work on the details. I would say uh, instead of uh, the uh, getting a vaccine from the U.S., I would say it's probably more important that we can create a common regulatory pathway for vaccine development. So uh, the company, the vaccine company here in Taiwan or the com company in the U.S., they can follow the same regulatory pathway uh, to get the uh, market approval. That will save a lot of time. So what do you know about the outlook for vaccine, whether coming from Taiwan or the U.S., um, for the coronavirus? Well, actually, uh, as everybody knows, that uh, uh, the U.S. has, under the uh, President Trump's uh, plan, uh, they are trying to obtain uh, doses more than they can use and uh, with, uh, from multiple sources, right? And so as a kind of uh, insurance. And so they are doing very well. I think uh, the phase one and phase two uh, trial from uh, the leading company called the Moderna uh, proves very uh, good, not the perfect, but is uh, acceptable. And they are continuing to do the phase three clinical trials. Here in Taiwan, uh, we are looking 
behind a little bit, but uh, we are beginning to do the phase one study. And uh, interesting to know, actually, the uh, Medigent uh, company here in Taiwan actually have the same origin of the vaccine, okay, mm. uh, from the NIH. So once the U.S. prove the Moderna vaccines is workable, to some degree, it would suggest that uh, our vaccine in Taiwan uh, could uh, work equally well. So that's good news. So um, what do you predict in terms of how fast the vaccine is going to come out and how it will help you know, contain this pandemic worldwide? Vaccine is the most important thing right now because uh, without the vaccine, I don't think there's an easy way to end the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, the earliest uh, possible uh, safe vaccine become available, in my mind, uh, that would be uh, the uh, early spring uh, next uh, year. Now, I know some people will say uh, in the end of the year, the winters, uh, there will be uh, vaccine available. But I would say uh, that's only for uh, emergency use only. Mm. Okay. So we are doing things differently these times, uh, which means that in the past, you know, all the vaccine developers, they will try the vaccines and uh, until it prove it totally safe and effective, then they started to produce. Now this time is different. They actually begin to produce mass quantity. At the same time, they are still in Testing. Uh, testing the vaccine. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I think uh, next year, uh, sooner or later, we will get the vaccine. Well, we hope very soon, right? Right. Um, yeah. Well, what, going back to um, Health Minister Azar's visit, mm-hmm. what do you think is the biggest benefit for uh, the U.S. and Taiwan? And what do you think, um, what do you hope to come out of this visit? Well, actually, I think uh, it definitely brings the two countries closer, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, spending two, four days in Taiwan for a uh, Secretary of Health uh, U.S. really shows something, you know. Mm. Ordinary people doesn't know that, but I know very well. I mean, uh, usually when a Secretary of Health uh, travels to Geneva for a World Health a- a- Assembly, mm-hmm. the average time is two or three days. Really? Yeah. So, because... He's just too busy? He's a busy guy, and uh, they are doing things like, you know, uh, every 10 minutes uh, meeting people (laughs) and then, you know, cry. So, I mean, by spending four days in Taiwan, uh, show uh, is really their goodwill. Yeah, Yeah, try to uh, making friends with Taiwan. That is Dr. Steve Guo, one of Taiwan's top health experts. He is the former director of the Centers for Disease Control in Taiwan and the current president of National Yangming University. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination 1100 years before the present.
in 2012, work on a highway in northeastern Taiwan led to a discovery. There, near a worksite, were the remains of an ancient village inhabited over a thousand years ago. Excavations began, and archaeologists assembled a picture of a sophisticated people linked into a trading network that reached beyond Taiwan's shores. The village is called the Hanbun site in Chinese, but it is also known as Bulihun, a traditional name for the surrounding area that means doorway in the indigenous Atayao language. This year, artifacts unearthed from the site are the focus of an exhibit called Bulihun, Recovered, Reconstructed, Reappeared. The exhibit is housed at the Lanyang Museum, a major museum also in northeastern Taiwan that focuses on local history and ecology. Here to walk us through the site, as well as through the exhibit, is Zhu Zhengyi, an archaeologist who worked extensively at Bulihun. Mr. Zhu says the Bulihun site, or at least its first cultural layer, was occupied between 1700 and 1100 years ago. Since the name Bulihun comes from the Atayal language, can we assume an Atayal connection? No, he says. The Atayal only began migrating to the area around 200 to 300 years ago, making them relative latecomers. What the people who lived here would have called their home is unknown. If there's no Atayal connection, are there other modern people the Bulihun site can be connected with? In Mr. Zhu's view, there are two answers. He says the people of Bulihun are likely connected to the Katagalan, an indigenous group that could be found across northern Taiwan. He also believes the people of Bulihun are related to the Kavalan people, the original people of this area, though as a branch on a common tree rather than as direct ancestors. Which of Taiwan's many prehistoric cultures does this site fit into? Mr. Zhu says the Shirsanhang culture a culture that finds from later sites show is connected as a whole to the Katagalan people. This culture's most famous attribute is its metalworking skill, something that can be seen in the objects dug up at Bulihun. These were people who knew their way around iron and gold and worked them, especially iron, in big quantities. There was plenty of iron and gold to go around, washed out from loads in the mountains to the sandy riversides where the sites of this culture are often found. The culture also had pottery decorated with complex markings. Most tantalizing of all are clear signs that these were people with international trade connections. Copper, agate, and glass, products not found in Taiwan, appear at this culture's sites, including at Bulihun. These could only have been imported, perhaps from southern China or Vietnam. Mr. Zhu cautions that in the case of Bulihun, these trade links might not have been direct. Some middleman elsewhere on Taiwan might have bartered with visitors from across the sea and traded on some of what they got, 
circulating these exotic goods to other parts of Taiwan. However the objects got here, whether by direct or indirect trade, they likely came by sea. The overland route to Bulihun, covered by the highway today, was difficult to pass through then, and it still is. Mr. Ju says one of the big challenges of excavating the site was the difficulty of getting people and equipment there. However these foreign goods got here, one thing that is clear is that the people living at the Bulihun site refashioned them, creating new objects more suited to their own tastes. Craftsmen took objects of copper and glass that came in, melted them down, and remade them into items with a local design. Both examples of original trade goods and of new objects refashioned from them are on display at the exhibit. What do the objects found at the site say about daily life in this area? The picture as Mr. Ju describes it seems comprehensive. We know what kind of houses they lived in, and we know a lot about their diet. He says there aren't signs of intensive agriculture, but there was lots of hunting and fishing. From swordfish to tuna, whales and sharks, and from pigs and deer to bears, they seem to have eaten everything they could catch. We can also see where all of their melting and smelting took place, thanks to the excavated remains of stoves or furnaces. Excavations have also revealed that the people who lived here sometimes faced disaster. Mr. Ju says that the Bulihun site has two or three cultural layers, broken up at points by huge stones and fields of debris. Landslides, still common in Taiwan's mountains today, buried everything. Mr. Ju says this is another special feature of the Bulihun site. All of this debris made excavating the village especially difficult, but at the same time, the burials have kept the cultural layers well preserved. What was life really like in the village? This is one of the questions the exhibit sets out to answer, not just in words, but through sensory experience. A section of the dig site has been reconstructed for the exhibit. It's empty, covered in stones, and with a layout mimicking the real site. People can wander around freely here, exploring what the excavated site looks like today. But they can also put on special glasses and see a reconstruction of what the site might have looked like over a thousand years ago. These scenes are presented through the medium of mixed reality. You can still see the real world around you, including the stones on the ground. But layered on top of this is an imagined scene of ancient daily life. There's a stream and a thatched house you can enter. Animated people around you go on with their daily activities, walking around, grinding oyster shells, and returning from a successful bear hunt with their quarry. When you put on the mixed reality glasses, you become part of the scene too. With hand movements, you can manipulate virtual objects like an oyster shell and an animal skull. 
This mix of real and virtual allows for a suggestion of what the village looked like and how and where objects found there might have been used. But the real-world mock-up of the site is still visible, showing the basis for all this reconstruction and keeping the imaginary from taking over. The Bulihun site will continue to enrich our picture of prehistoric life in this corner of Taiwan. So what does the future hold for the site now? Mr. Zhu says that excavations around the highway work area are complete. The main mission now will be keeping the site intact, ensuring that it is not disturbed. Another important part of preservation work will involve the artifacts themselves. Mr. Zhu says these artifacts must be cared for and exhibited to the public to create an appreciation for the Bulihun site. Several years after excavations began, this exhibit is the first step in doing that. You can catch Bulihun recovered, reconstructed, reappeared at the Lanyang Museum in Ilan County through November 21st. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Biggest ghost festival in Taiwan is the Zhongyuan Festival in Jilong, and here to tell us all about that is Catherine Wei. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Now I hear that this is not only the biggest ghost festival in Taiwan; it is also one with a very long history. Yes, this festival dates back to the Qing Dynasty. Wow. The first official Zhongyuan Festival in Jilong was in 1855. That was after years of armed fighting between immigrants from the Chinese cities of Zhangzhou and Quanzhou. The fighting was brutal, and many people died. But they had come to Taiwan without family members, so there was no one to give them a proper burial. It's said that their ghosts roamed the earth unhappily. That's why the festival started. It was a way to appease the spirits that died in these battles. Nowadays, fifteen family clans take turns hosting the festivities. The festival begins with the lantern lighting ceremony and continues throughout the lunar month with fifteen events, including a parade with themed performances. The most exciting part is the releasing of water lanterns, which takes place this year on August 30th. The water lanterns look like guesthouses and light the way for spirits who drown to come ashore and enjoy the offerings prepared for them. Oh, those are really cool lanterns, aren't they? Now I hear that people will actually watch the lanterns as they float away to see what happens to them. That's right. They say the further away from shore the lanterns float, the more their descendants will prosper. So you really want to make sure it doesn't like burn up while it's floating away, no, right? No, I don't want it to sink either. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that was fascinating, Catherine. Thanks so much. And that is this week's Taiwan Explained.
Listen. Are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies: in Southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me/radiotaiwanintl. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me/radiotaiwanintl for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.